Father, this morning we come and we bring you our praise, we bring you our blessings, we, we give you thanks for all of the good things that you have given us, for all of the light and joy and peace in our life. We, we give you thanks for your great patience and forgiveness. We give you thanks that you uh, hold us and keep us even when we wonder. And this morning, Father, we, we return to your heart, we return to your throne, we ask um, that you would lift up your Son in front of us, that we would worship him and follow him, that we would be transformed into his image. We pray that your Spirit would come, that your Spirit would move in our hearts, would move in this room, that we would be made new to live in and enjoy and spread the kingdom that you have come to start. Help us to be kingdom citizens. Help us to bring your will to earth as it is in heaven and be with us now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. We are in a sermon series right now called The King's Speech, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a very famous sermon that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We started this series by noting that there's something called the nod test for the Sermon on the Mount, which is everyone likes the Sermon on the Mount until a certain point when it starts to call you out. And the Sermon on the Mount is an equal opportunity offender. So at some point, we're all nodding and we'll read something and you'll go, I don't know about that. That hits a little too close to home. That is a little too convicting or challenging for me. This might be the Sunday for you. If it's not, don't worry. There's lots of uh, more sermon to come for you. Um, we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here in this passage gives us an introduction into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to largely be ethical teaching or moral teaching. Instruction about how we're supposed to live our lives. Instructions about what God's will is for our lives. Instructions about how kingdom people are supposed to act in the kingdom that Jesus has come to inaugurate. And there's a misconception that gets passed around every now and then, which is that to be a Christian means that our behavior no longer matters. To be a Christian means that since our sins are forgiven, Jesus doesn't really care about what we do anymore. We get kind of a free pass. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call this cheap grace. It ignores the truth that part of God's grace is his transformation in our lives. It's our ability to walk free from our sin, to live in the kingdom, a kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness. And Jesus says here, right, I've not come to get rid of the law. I've not come to get rid of the responsibilities that God's people have. I've come to bring them to their fruition. I've come to bring them to the ultimate goal. And he says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they thought they had the law down. They thought they were living the way that God truly wanted them to live. And Jesus says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that, you won't be able to participate in this kingdom thing that I'm doing, this kingdom of God that I'm inaugurating. And the best way to interpret this, what does Jesus mean when he says your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees? The best way to interpret this is to see what he says next. 
because the rest of the sermon is his explanation. This is what this kind of righteousness looks like. This is what this type of living looks like. This is what it's like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus begins here a series of six very important passages where he will hold up something that the people of God have heard something in the, the law or the prophets, an old command. And he will say, you've heard it said this, but now I tell you this. And when Jesus does this, he is giving himself a certain authority. Just like Moses on the law came and gave the Ten Commandments to God's people and said, this is what God wants of you. Jesus now comes and says, this is truly the heart, the fruition, the fulfillment of everything that God wants for you. We sometimes call this um, six theses and antitheses. So you'll get a thesis, um, you have heard it said, and then you'll get an antithesis, but I say. And you have six of them, back to back to back to back to back. Jesus says, you've heard it said, he talks about murder. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about retaliation. He talks about loving your enemy. You've heard it said, but I say. And Jesus, when he introduces his, but I say, what we'll find over and over and over again, we'll take our time to work through these six theses and antitheses. Um, what we'll find is Jesus is not getting rid of the original intent. He's not getting rid of what we have heard and known to be true. He's actually going deeper. He's going to push the law further. He's going to raise the bar a little bit higher. Jesus has not come for us to slack off. Jesus has come to show us the heart of what the law was pointing towards all along. And he starts here with murder. You shall not murder, you've heard it said. This is one of the Ten Commandments you find in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments are God's instructions to God's people. This is how life works. Life will work better if you don't go around killing people. You'll have better relationships. People will trust each other more. And we see that command, don't murder. I think most of us feel pretty good about ourselves. If you don't, don't say it now. I don't know where to go after that. But we go, look, I haven't murdered anyone. At least not that the courts can prove. Um, I haven't murdered anyone. I'm, I'm good to go. And Jesus goes, okay, you maybe have not murdered anybody. And maybe that's the righteousness that the Pharisees held up and were proud of. But Jesus says, I tell you the same judgment you're liable to for murdering someone. You're liable to for being angry at them, for insulting your brother, for calling them a fool. And instantly we all go, oh no, this seems harsh. This seems intense. This almost seems impossible. Does anyone who's angry in their heart is liable to the same judgment? You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, whoever's angry will be liable. Now what we often do is we look at the thesis and antithesis here 
you have heard it said, but I say, and we focus on what Jesus is now saying. And we assume, especially in this passage, that Jesus is saying this, don't be angry. But read very carefully, anywhere in this passage, did Jesus say not to be angry? I don't see it. There's no command here where Jesus says, don't be angry. It's not a one-on-one correlation where Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you, don't be angry. Jesus instead is kind of diagnosing the problem that leads to murder. He's saying, look, you can get rid of murder, but you can still have a horrible community. You can still have, have violence and distrust and division. You can still have structural injustice in the world. There's something deeper. There's a root cause. There's a symptom you've got to yank out, and that will eventually solve this problem of murder. And he cuts to the heart. And he says, it's the relationship between one person and another. It's the reaction we have when somebody wrongs us or offends us or gets on our nerves. This anger festers. It leads to insults. And then this eventually leads to things like murder. We live in a murderous world. I mean, there's just a lot of murder. You don't have to be in Chicago. You turn on the news and, and people are killing one another. I can remember very clearly I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school. I was staying for the night at my best friend's house. And we woke up early in the morning and I was going to get in my truck and go home. And the street was blocked off by police. There were helicopters everywhere. And we had no idea what was going on. And what had happened was a family had been murdered. A family we knew. The kid had murdered them. It was one of the biggest scandals to rock Sugarland the last decade or so. And I can remember thinking as a kid, how, how can anything get to that point? I mean, how can any relationship problem, how can any grudge, how can any, any conflict escalate to that point? And Jesus says it starts, it starts with that first instinct. It starts with what you do with that feeling when someone wrongs you or you are wronged and you become angry. There's no place, actually, in the New Testament that will tell you not to become angry. Later on, when the New Testament writers are talking about anger, they don't seem to have an awareness that Jesus taught people to not be angry. In Ephesians, Paul will say, be angry, but don't sin. In your anger, don't sin. Don't, don't do anything wrong, although you might feel anger. James will tell us, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger. They'll say, for the anger of God does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of men does not produce the justice of God. The anger of men doesn't order the world the way God wants it to be ordered, which is the verse that every politician should have to tattoo on their forehead, right? We live in a climate of anger. That seems to be the currency that we exchange ideas and issues and debates in. Who can be the angriest? Who can be the loudest? And Scripture says very clearly, if you're doing something and the primary motivation is anger, it's not going to work out for you or for anybody else. I don't care what your cause is. I don't care what you're fighting. It could be the right thing. You could have identified something that truly is evil and needs to be eradicated. But if anger is your motivating force, the Scriptures say you're off course. Anger just doesn't do that type of thing. Anger spirals and spirals. And at its most extreme, when you see it most clearly, it's death. It's murder. But Jesus says it starts in the heart of every man, of every woman, when they become angry. Whoever is angry is liable to judgment. The, the word here for whoever is angry is a participle that is a fancy way of saying it's an ongoing thing. Jesus is not saying whoever gets angry. He's saying whoever fosters this anger, whoever lives angrily, 
whoever holds these grudges, these are the people liable. And notice Jesus does give us some commands in this passage, but the command is not to not be angry. It's to do something about our anger, something productive, something kingdom-oriented. He gives us two kind of illustrations. Someone's going to offer a sacrifice at the altar. They remember that they have something wrong in a relationship with a brother or sister. And then someone else is taking them to court, and on the way they are instructed to try to settle things between themselves before it gets to the point where they're in front of a judge. And it's easy to see these things as kind of like a, a push-off, um, end-of-the-passage type. Jesus just giving us a couple examples. But I actually think the emphasis of what Jesus is saying is in these two examples. So here's what I'm going to argue as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think we should read these instructions as one and two. You've heard it said, but I tell you. I think there's a threefold pattern in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I think you get three things. In fact, 14 times I've identified it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will say, you've heard it said, or he'll say something. He'll diagnose the problem. It's the anger that gets you there. And then he's going to give you an initiative, an action, something you can do that would transform the situation, that would end the vicious cycle. We often read the Sermon on the Mount. We get to passages like this, and, and we kind of implicitly go, Jesus is telling us not to be angry. This is impossible. This can't apply to me. But then we look at the passage and look at what Jesus is actually telling you to do. Be reconciled to your brother. Come to terms quickly. This could be translated to make friends with the person accusing you. These are actually things you can do. These are steps you can take. You can make a phone call this afternoon and start this. And all of a sudden, the cycle of anger leads to violence, leads to murder, starts to be disrupted, starts to, to crumble. He gives an example of this guy who's at the altar, and it's, it's kind of this hyperbolic example. So it would have taken three days for you to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem where the temple is and to give an offering. You brought an animal or bought one there most likely. And Jesus says that the picture he has in mind here is this anxious worshiper. And he remembers right before he's about to give the sacrifice, oh no, there's a relationship in trouble. And the picture Jesus wants us to imagine is someone leaving their animal in the temple courts for about a week as they take a three-day trek back to Galilee. Find that person, make that relationship right, and then go and make their offering. Jesus says reconciliation comes before worship. He doesn't say get rid of worship. He says come back and offer your gift. But he says your gift, really, and Jesus will say this in multiple places, is kind of meaningless. If there are problems in your relationships, if the community is not strong. Jesus doesn't tell you not to be angry, but he does tell you when you're angry, don't go to the temple, turn around and go to the village. Don't go by the animal, go find the person and be reconciled to them. And he gives another example, you're on your way to court. And he says, with that enemy that you have who's accusing you of something, make friends with them. Be a peacemaker. It's interesting, the first example, Jesus says, um, if you remember that your brother has something against you, watch, watch what happened there, right? He's not saying, if you remember that you have something against a brother or a sister, so I'm not worshiping, and then I remember, oh yeah, I don't like that about that person, and yeah, I really hate that about that person. He's saying, no, I'm about to worship, and I realize someone else might be mad at me for this or for that. Watch what you have to analyze just expand, Right? 
It's a whole lot easier for us to sit down maybe this afternoon and go, who am I mad at? This person, this person, this person, this person. For some of us, like whoever's talked to me in the last two days, just make the list. It's a lot more difficult to sit down and go, who might be mad at me? Who might have something against me? This is a much more proactive kind of approach to reconciling relationships. And yet this is the call that Jesus gives us. Instead of letting anger build into grudges and destroy and divide communities and relationships and build into these cycles of sin and violence and destruction, instead we're called to go right into the heart of the tornado and called to stop it with peace and reconciliation. Enemies turning into friends. Our anger needs to be channeled into peacemaking. We've talked before about the difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. Peacekeeping keeps two parties away who don't like each other. Peacemaking brings together two parties. Peacemaking is frustrating and difficult. It takes patience. There are no guarantees. This is what's hard about about trying to do something like this, right? Is, is if there's a relationship and conflict and you go and attempt to reconcile that relationship, you make yourself vulnerable. When you go and say, I'm sorry for what I've brought to the table for this. I want to be right with you. Because you cannot control what that person does. In that moment, you open yourself up, and if they want to, they can pull the firing squad on you. You become vulnerable. In that moment, you become Christ-like. The one who came and became vulnerable for us. In that moment, you might find yourself remembering the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You might wake up and enjoy the good news that you are living in as a a peacemaker. This is what Jesus is calling us to. We have this traditional standard of righteousness, don't murder. Jesus then identifies this kind of vicious cycle of anger, and he gives us this transforming initiative, a way out of it. I can think back over the course of my life, the strongest Christ-like relationships I have with people inside the church, not small C church, but body of Christ church, are not relationships that were without anger. It's not like there was never a point where either of us were never angry at each other. The strongest, most affirming relationships I've had inside of the body of Christ are relationships like this. We've grown, lots of things have happened, we've served together, and there have been times where we got angry at one another. There have been times we've raised our voice at one another. There have been times we've called each other names and then left and called each other worse names. But that relationship arcs towards peace. The relationship always somehow finds its way back to reconciliation because it's built on Christ's love. It's built on our acceptance in Christ and in the body of Christ. It gives me the freedom to not overreact to conflict, to not push people away because I'm scared of being rejected, but to know that my relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ have a long arc, and that arc is towards friendship and community and unity. And it means I have the freedom now to resolve conflict. I don't have to be as afraid. I don't have to be as protective. I have a community that can rally around me. This is transformative action Jesus gives us. Jesus doesn't leave us with this high ideal, don't be angry. 
He gives us steps. He says, do these things and you'll start to see the work of God in your life. You'll start to see the Spirit unfold in your community. You'll start to see the kingdom of God sprout up among you. Be reconciled with those who you are distant with. Make friends with those who are accusing you. Make peace. Transformation is happening in these relationships. Persons are being transformed from people characterized by anger to people characterized by intentionality, by active peacemaking. No longer do I just harbor this kind of hurt inside of me, but I look outwards. I go on the offensive. How can I grow and build and cultivate relationships? How can I restore relationships that are gone? There's transformation in these relationships. The relationships are transformed from one of anger, from one of competition, to relationships of peacemaking, a process. This is the great, I think, realization that we can have about relationships inside the body of Christ, is that they're a process. Usually people, I think, react the worst way possible when they think a relationship has to be perfect in that exact moment. Because if we're not getting along right now, that means we'll never get along. That means the whole family's blown up. That means this relationship is flawed from the beginning. And it's only when you can realize, no, 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 we're on, a, we're on a walk. And it might be difficult right now. It might be bumps. It might be climbing a mountain. But there's a process. And this relationship is not a relationship where we just build up anger and store it. This is a relationship where we seek out peace, where we know the trajectory, we know the goal, and we follow Christ on the way there. This is a community where enemies are transformed into friends. The community of Jesus is a place where anger is turned into peacemaking, where those who were once far away come together, where the big evils like murder are solved at the very root, when people's hearts are transformed by the love of Christ and by the work of the Spirit. And this is not varsity-level stuff. You don't have to be the Pope to do this. You don't even have to know perfectly how to resolve conflict to do this. All you have to do is be able to identify a place where you have anger or a place where you've angered somebody and make a step towards them. Turn away from the temple and go towards the village. Apologize. To, to reconcile, to, to resolve conflict involves honesty. It involves humility. Like we said, it involves vulnerability. Without those things, you'll never have the peace Jesus is talking about. You'll never be able to live this kind of kingdom life Jesus is describing here. So there are all these things we can do. I mean, we can even start today as we follow Christ, as we, we hear this teaching. Now, I've found that I normally don't have a good grasp on my habits and patterns unless I truly start to analyze them intentionally. What I mean by that is this. I think I could tell you off the top of my head what makes me angry, what my typical reactions are to the situations, what my triggers are, right? What the results are, the consequences usually of the things that I do when I'm angry, when people are angry at me. But here's what will happen. If I sit for a week and like journal this, I'll be surprised. Be surprised at how often I got angry. 
I'd be surprised at what actually made me angry. I'd be surprised at what kept me angry, what I was able to just kind of get over and what really stood and stuck. I'll be surprised over what I actually did in response to anger. I'll be surprised over the consequences my anger has in relationships and in communities. And Jesus is calling us to do this hard work of evaluation and examination. Jesus is calling us to to sit down and to ask the question, who do I need to reconcile with? What are those relationships? Not just who am I angry at, who might be angry at me? How can I go proactively seek to inject peace and joy and unity in the relationships that I'm involved in? What practices can I adopt that will develop in me this heart that leans towards peace and not towards anger? What can I start to do today? What, what, what daily rhythms can I build into my life? What, what accountability can I build into my world to where in five years, I don't react the same way I react right now. And in 10 years from now, I don't react the way I reacted five years. And then in 40, 50 years, something happens and all of a sudden I'm kind of a natural peacemaker. Because I've been slowly but surely following Jesus on this kingdom life that he's called us to. What would happen if as a community we slowly but surely sought out peace and unity, sought to uproot and get rid of anger and division and grudges? What would our community look like in five years and 10 years and 20 years? Jesus might say, it looks like a city on a hill. It looks like a light for the world. Showing creation what the world might look like if humans embraced God's work in Christ if we truly followed and reacted to the Spirit. This morning we're invited to shed the old ways of life, our old ways of reacting, our old ways of relating to one another, and instead walk in this new kingdom life. Instead to go forward, active, intentional, about making peace, reconciling relationships, and being a part of the kingdom project that Jesus has begun and will one day finish. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Father, for our time this morning. I thank you for the scriptures you've given us. I thank you for the teachings of your Son, recorded for us in the scriptures, preserved throughout history. I I pray that you would give us hearts to obey your Son, to to hear his teachings, and to not see in them wrath or, or see in them guilt or fear, but instead to see in them life and promise. I pray that you would send your spirit and that he would work in us supernaturally. I pray that what we can't do on our own, we would find your spirit carries us and provides grace and patience and forgiveness. I pray that you would create in our relationships to one another, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, in this church, a city on a hill, a group of people who seek peace and unity, who foster love and joy, and who walk away from anger and violence. We do all these things because you have reconciled with us. While we were enemies, you, out of your love, died for us. And so we worship and follow you. And it's in the name of the Father, 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So all God's people this morning said, Amen.